The Siddur that we have been given is a series of choices that human beings made, right? Responses to the universe, which is one way of thinking about prayer, a human response to the universe, trying to put into words that which cannot be put into words. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. Also want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, JLTV, Jewish Life Television Network. JLTV is a 24-7 cable and satellite television network delivering news, history, and entertainment. JLTV brings together the greatest voices from around the country, across the world, and from the Holy Land. Go to jltv.tv for stories that inspire. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm super excited for this episode. It'll be a very special one with my little sister over here on the East Coast. Let me introduce the woman properly. Eliana is working towards a world of oneness, guided and inspired by Jewish heritage. She focuses on translating liturgy, prayer practice, and God concepts in ways that are deep and accessible for all people at any age. Eliana's music's gathering, teaching, reflect a spirit of playfulness, embodied wisdom, empathy, and joy. Eliana grew up in a caring Jewish home in Memphis, Tennessee. Her parents, a rabbi and a Jewish educator with a beautiful voice, instilled in her a love for Jewish ritual, culture, and sacred song. She seeks to share this love with others, believing that all Jews deserve meaningful Jewish experiences, whether in synagogues, on the fringes, or online. In 2016, Eliana graduated from the Davidson School at the Jewish Theological Seminary with a master's in Jewish experiential education. Her undergraduate degree in sociology from Brandeis University honed her skills in observing and empathy that are crucial to her work. She now lives in Durham, North Carolina, holding sacred space and song as artist in residence at Bethel and with synagogues across the country. She is also the founder and head to philosopher of the Light Lab and co-host the Light Lab podcast. So ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Eliana Light. Let's go. Oh, yes. Hey. That's how we do it. Louder in the back. Come on. Let's go. Yes. Bring it Oh, my goodness. Okay. 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 All right. Calm down, everybody. Oh, my gosh. So excited today. Eliana, how are you? Shalom, holy brother. I am doing quite well. It's so great to be in the podcast space with you. Yeah, I'm excited. We're going to hear about your podcast as well. For those of my audience that don't really know your story, a little bit about you, I want you to talk about your uh, growing up Jewishly, but specifically in the home of a rabbi and Jewish educator. Yes, absolutely. I put that in my bio because I think it's so important to remember where we came from. I feel lucky that I have a lot of what I call synagogue privilege, that when I walk into a synagogue, I feel a sense of ownership. And I hope that that's what all Jewish folks, no matter what their story is, no matter when they came to Judaism, feel when they walk into a synagogue. Um, But I know it's not that easy, but it's 
it's my it's part of my story but was it the day school that really instilled a love of judaism in me jewish camp probably a little bit uh hebrew school because i went to day school and also hebrew school because that's the kind of kid i was was it that not really was part of it but i think the main thing was just having a joyful jewish home like friday nights were surrounded by people around the Shabbat table, and we would take out the little blue Bacolachad benchers and sing through all of the songs late into the night. Um, we listened to Jewish music, we read Jewish books, we had Jewish games. Judaism was always something that was fun and warm and inviting and shared with others. I never felt it growing up as a burden. I never felt it as a have to. It was more like a get to. And it Again, I recognize that that is not everybody's Jewish experience. And so I feel very grateful for that. And I hope that through making Jewish sacred heritage, particularly in my kind of line of work, tefillah, more accessible and meaningful, it's able to unlock that Jewish joy for more for more folks. I love it. So uh, who was who in your family? Which one was rabbi? Which one was Jewish educator? Not that a rabbi isn't by nature a Jewish That's educator. That's true. So my father was a rabbi um, at Beth Shalom Synagogue, conservative synagogue in Memphis. Um, and my mom is a social worker and also has a master's in, I think it's called, it was called nonprofit management that HUC used to do a joint program with um what is now American Jewish University, what used to be the University of Judaism out in LA. Um, and it was kind of that combination. I loved going to synagogue. I loved leading services, but it was partially because I was a bit of a diva child and just wanted to sing on any stage all the time. <laughs> and it wasn't until later that I realized, oh, this tefillah stuff is actually very powerful and connective and connects to my spiritual side. It really just started as I want an audience. <laughs> and whether that audience is those dozens of people we had for Shabbat dinner and me coming out and performing a quote unquote show. I mean, you have little kids now. Now it's like, this is what it is, you know? And my parents having taught me that all, all shows have a beginning, middle and an end. And they would very gently be like, find an ending, Eliana find an ending great teaching right there we're <laughs> going to implement that immediately teaching. yes is that find an ending um, or whether it was singing in the choir at school or um on the bima i i loved performing i was writing songs from a very early age and and the jewish piece kind of fit right in it never felt as separate from my life in fact i remember my parents telling me when i asked once i don't remember how old i was but my English name is Eliana and my Hebrew name is also Eliana. And there are plenty of people who have either the same Hebrew or English name or different ones. You know, all parents and caregivers make different decisions. But to hear it from my parents, it was a conscious choice to give us, me and my brother, each had one name that was both Hebrew and English to say, it's not like your Jewish self is separate from your quote unquote, regular self or your everyday self. It's all one self. And I felt like that was very, um, yeah, that was a very powerful idea that manifested itself in my childhood. Integration from an early age. I love it. So yeah. it sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that you grew up in a conservative Jewish home. Did you go to Ramaz, like conservative day camp or? Yeah, I went to Ramaz Rome in Clayton, Georgia. I was a staff kid the first year of camp in 97 and then went from 
1999 through 2004. Then I did a couple of USY programs. I was very active in USY. Went to a Solomon Schechter school. Definitely a poster child, one might say, for the conservative movement in America. Gotcha. Cool. And so talk to me about okay, after day school and you went off to college and master's and were you always clear this was your path or did you ever think maybe I would just become a you know professional songwriter or a singer songwriter performing artist? It's interesting. I feel like my my path wove around and had a lot of different ways it could go until I'll tell you about like two poles of experiences over the course of one year that really had an effect on my life. Like when I was a kid, kid, I'd say maybe like 10 and younger, you know, I wanted to be a famous singer, dancer, actress, Broadway star, movie star, choreographer, author, famous person. <laughs> and I wrote a lot of songs about being famous, uh, which are very funny. I have like all of my old songs in a big binder um, that only those who are very close to me get to see. Um, but um, that was the plan until I had a very strong yen to be a rabbi. It was, that's what I was going to do. And one of the reasons I ended up going um, to Brandeis and ended up studying sociology is I always assumed, well, I'm gonna go to rabbinical school and study Jewish studies full time. So I should learn something different while I'm at undergrad. And I had a moment and I can tell that story, but it was a very particular moment where I realized I didn't want to be a rabbi anymore, um, that I loved leading tefillah more than I liked learning Talmud and more than I liked giving and writing sermons and more than I liked. And that wasn't always the case. I think I, I just kind of noticed that, that was the trajectory. And then I thought, you know, am I going to be a cantor? Is that going to be what my role is? I had started leading some family services here and there. I used to hate working with children, by the way. I also tell this as part of my origin story, um, because now I, of course, I love working with young children. But I took my first family service job at the synagogue uh, near Brandeis when I saw it advertised, because I thought, if I'm going to be a rabbi, I think it's very important for rabbis to have at least experience and a little bit of comfort working with all ages of people, because most rabbis and synagogues are going to interact with all the ages of the population. Sure. And of course, I fell in love with it. <laughs> but I used to not like working with kids. But anyway, um, what the two poles Wait, hold on, pause. What? <laughs> yes. What changed? Because I know there's some people that like get thrown into that and they're like, oh, and some people that naturally are drawn towards that. Whereas like, for example, my wife started leading music with kids and like, I never did that until way later. And now I love it. So talk about that. Right. So when I, I did a gap year program in Israel and we were the second half of the year in a little town called Yerucham and they put me in the Gan in the kindergarten. That's where everybody wanted to be. And I remember the first day thinking as all these children were running around like i don't i don't know what to do with these kids i don't know how to reason with them they're all snotty and they're making noises and i don't know what to do and i asked to be transferred to the middle school people are like middle school <laughs> like you'd rather work in a middle school than a kindergarten <laughs> and at the time i was like yeah actually i get these kids and so i had a great time that year in the middle school um but when i started it the synagogue, which 
Uh, I can't remember its official name because it was by the Hannaford supermarket. So my friends and I called it Temple Beth Hannaford. I know that's not the actual name of the synagogue, but at Temple Beth Hannaford, downstairs, they had this big room. They called it the rug room. It was like the size of the sanctuary, but it was covered in mats and pillows. It was rented by by a group doing meditation during the week, but we had like free reign of this giant room. And sometimes it would just be the rabbi's kid. And sometimes it was the rabbi's husband and the rabbi's kid. And sometimes it was this other kid. Sometimes we'd have six kids, but I remember it being so fun Mm -hmm. and really having creative space to come up with games and activities and stories and utilize that awesome space. And by the end of that year, it was like, oh, this is great. And then when I was in New York, after one year of doing grad school full time, I applied for a job at Park Avenue Synagogue that opened for a music educator because it seemed absolutely perfect. And it really was. And the first thing that I did or the first thing they had me do was music in the day camp. So preschool music in the day camp. So even though I had had some experience before then, song leading, um, with like camp age kids, sleepaway camp age kids, that was the first time entering like, oh, these little ones, what do I do with them? But they're so cute and fun and just kind of opening up to the experience. Um, but to say song leader, like to kind of go back into the flow of the story for a bit, um, I didn't really know what that was. The, f- the first pull of my kind of this is what I want to do with my life experience was at New Cage in 2012. And that's where we met Saul. Um, I wonder if you remember the kind of like songwriters in the round experience that you produced that evening. Remind me, I knew I produced a bunch of things for New Cage. I can't remember which one. That's true. So there were like two different concerts that night. One of them was with Noah Aronson and Naomi Less and I can look back. There's a photo, a couple of folks. There was something in honor of uh, an anniversary of Kolba Setter with Jeff Klepper and Rabbi Danny Friedlander. And there was like a in the round with you and me and Alana and maybe somebody else. Um, But the reason that I ended up at New Cage was because of Michael Cates, who played guitar for me that evening, Mm -hmm. of the Baal Shem Tones. Um, He and his wife, Helene, this great duo out of Atlanta. And we had met when I did a Passover retreat with my family when I was in high school. And I had shared with him some of the Jewish songs that I had written up to that point, which had already been many. So I kind of came at all of this as a songwriter first, actually, I would say. Um, And we can kind of go back to that particular story. But he Facebook messaged me before the summer and invited me to come to this conference. I'd never heard of it. I met all these incredible musicians there became friends with a lot of them. And that showed me that Jewish education was a career path mm-hmm. and could incorporate my love of music and song. A bunch of other great stuff happened that year. I recorded my first album because I was um, connected to Scott who produced it. And I was doing work with Bible raps and I went to my first local SLBC song leader bootcamp. A lot of stuff happened. And then in the spring, I was asked um, to be the Roshi Ra, the song leading head at Ramah, Wisconsin, and I went to Havana Shira for the first time. And that's the second poll mm. where I really kind of met my people, discovered my people, and discovered that song leader was a job that one could have, not just over the summer, but all year long. And 
I was in a very, you know, that was, I've been thinking about it a lot because it was Havanashira 2013, that was 10 years ago. And so much has changed and I'm so grateful for finding it. My own ideas about prayer and Judaism have changed. My own practice has changed. Um, my life and my work have certainly changed. It's really become, um, become my calling or I've, you know, I found it as a calling and really um, took it upon myself. But those really were the two experiences that showed me that song leader and Jewish educator were jobs. And so even though there was a time when I applied to cantorial school and got in and I ended up not going, mm. um, this ended up being the path. And were there times when I thought, you know what, maybe I should try writing songs for children's television, or maybe I should like, can I get whosever job it is to name nail polish colors at OPI? Like, or is what I'm doing actually helping the world? Maybe I should quit and become an organizer, but like, I'd be a terrible organizer. I'm not very organized, <laughs> like, recognizing that these are the gifts that I have been given and the things that I've been put on this earth to do and just feeling grateful every day that I get to do it. Amazing. And it's also amazing that that was my first and only Havana this year. It was 2013 as well. I remember wow. meeting Joey Wessenberg there and Billy Jonas and like yeah. it was all into running. We were running with everyone. It was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> and New Cage as well. So it's amazing. And, you know, those conferences definitely for people that are not familiar New Cage, you know, originally was Cage, which was Conference mm -hmm. of Jewish Educators. Now it's New Cage. Check it out if you're an educator or musician or haven't con yeah. connected to people. It's a great way. And same with Havanashir as well. Havanashir is a little bit more focused on the songwriting, communal singing and tefillah leading through music. And it's beautiful. Certainly if you love harmonies, you definitely want to go steep in the, in the pool of that for sure. Mm. Um, okay. Question. Yes. So you said, now this may change. <laughs> The reason why you didn't really want to go down the rabbinic route, which you're such a natural teacher, this is why I'm coming back to it, was, hmm. you know, Talmud Thank isn't you. your thing, which, you know, uh, full transparency, not my thing either, or many people's things. <laughs> and you're not really into, I think I heard this correctly, writing, you know, drashot or drashing, right? Mm -hmm. I know plenty of rabbis that don't do either one of those things. So <laughs> that's, that's just fair. a definition in your mind, or is there something more to it? I think the moment that 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 this happened, I think it was kind of a culmination of recognizing and embracing the role that I wanted music and prayer leadership to have in my life. Um, that's not to say that rabbis that there aren't rabbis that do that. You know, plenty of rabbis where tefillah and prayer leading and song leading are a big part of their rabbinate. Um, I think it just felt different. You know, when I was working in New York and looking into going to cantorial school um, as like the next step of the journey, I would talk to people about it and they'd say, well, just go to rabbinical school. Like if you're really doing it for the title, just go to rabbinical school. That's a title that's going to give you more opportunities. And me feeling and thinking into like, I don't think it's just for the title. Or like I wouldn't want it just for the title. If you're going to spend like five to six years of your life studying something and, and being in that place, you want it to feel um, that there's integrity around it. And for me, it just didn't feel like a fit with integrity anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like part of it might be, you know, even though I went, the, the education program I did is at the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is a conservative institution, but the Davidson School itself is pluralistic. Mm -hmm. And it was 
kind of the end of being in college and the first few years of living in New York that I became open and touched by different ways of being Jewish in a way that led me to not feel comfortable co-signing or putting a stamp on myself from any movement in particular. Now, again, I know plenty of people who graduate from the from different institutions and don't necessarily feel like that reflects who they are. And there's Hebrew College and other programs that are pluralistic. It just didn't feel any more like my path. And, and I'm not saying that it never will be. You're right. I, I love teaching and I love sharing and I love holding ritual space. And I feel very grateful that I get to do that in the way that I would like to now and that that's continuously growing and changing. I'm always open to to possibilities, but right now, educator seems like the moniker that I wear very proudly. Uh -huh. Got it. Or Shamati. So this actually <laughs> totally brilliantly led into my next question, which which was going to be, or do you align with any particular Jewish movement personally and uh, talk a little bit more about Jewish pluralism? Yeah. When I'm pressed, I often say that I'm a pluralist. And that's not to say that I'm what some might call post-denominational. It's that I believe that the different organs of Jewish community should all and can all be healthy and functioning. You know, I think about every different piece as an organ. And if the whole thing is the body, we want all of the organs to be able to function. And that pluralism isn't just throwing, throwing all of the ideas and trying to do them at the same time and saying all Jews should be able to do all things at the same time, um, because that doesn't allow certain identities in certain types of people to have full participation and have their voices heard. But if pluralism means um, different commitments coming to the table and learning together and learning from each other, then that's what excites me. Um, I got so much from my education growing up. I got a really solid background in the words of the liturgy, but it wasn't really until later in college when I took a liturgy course with um, Rabbi Reuven Kimmelman. And then when I started my senior year, I went to reconstructionist services for the first time. It was like, oh, the music, the instruments are being used here really beautifully. Maybe not all services with instruments are bad, which was something that I thought with my like black and white teenage thinking at the time, which is a whole different story about my path to now being comfortable <laughs> using instruments on Shabbat to the point that it's my job. You know, when I moved to New York, I was working at a conservative synagogue and going to JTS, but I found my spiritual home at Romamu, at a renewal institution and started doing some song leading there and learned so much from that. And I've learned so much in reconstructing Judaism spaces and from reconstructionist rabbis. And I wouldn't have the job I have if it wasn't for the reform movement and song leading training that I got through the reform movement. So I've come to just value the different things that I have learned from the different movements and desire for there to be a healthy communal body. I love it. Okay, so perfect segue. Let's talk about your job, which I think you're the artist in residence. Is that your job or is there something else to it? And explain to, to our listeners what that actually means. Yeah, kind of like what my my day to day week to week looks like. Yeah. Um, so right now I'm recording this 
in the rabbi's office at Bethel Synagogue in beautiful Durham, North Carolina, uh, partially because the, the internet at my house is being spotty because I live in a lovely old apartment above a lovely old house um, with friends of mine. And we were like, why aren't our emails sending? Mm-hmm. Oh, the internet's down. So uh, hop, skip and a jump away to this lovely place. And I'm here at the synagogue part-time, partially because after a couple of years of doing so many things on Zoom, and I feel very lucky that I had a lot of work in the only Zoom years, I really wanted to be with people in person and sing with them in person. Of course, we know that there's something so beautiful and valuable about that. So I do uh, musical services here with um, other musicians that are local once a month. I'm in the Talmud Torah, which is like their Hebrew school doing musical tefillah and song leading um, twice a month. I do a Rosh Chodesh group here for the new moon and a bunch of other things, holiday programs that come up throughout the year, um, different adult learning opportunities, song circles, both under the moniker of the synagogue and also just locally in the community with other folks. So that's that's a big part of what I do. And the rest of the time, um, I, I have a couple of different buckets, but they're all related. Uh, I do work um, as an artist in residence going around to different synagogues, as you do, and as many of the guests who you've had on this podcast so far do. And I always feel so honored and blessed that that's a part of my job. Like the sociologist in me loves to see how different Jewish communities work Mm -hmm. and what it means to be Jewish in different places in the country. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a joy to be welcomed by new people who really are taking a chance on you. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like people show up to a concert I do at a synagogue because they love my music and they want to sing along to all the songs. They usually don't have any clue who I am, but they come anyway because they're supportive of their synagogue and hopefully they've learned something and had a beautiful experience while we're all together. Um, and then the third made part of my work is through my project that is turning into its own organization slowly over time called the Light Lab, mm-hmm. where our mission is to make Jewish prayer and Jewish liturgy and prayer practice accessible and meaningful to all seekers. Um, the Light Lab is the home of the podcast that I do, The Light Lab, with our friends Cantor Ellen Dreskin and Rabbi Josh Wachowski, where we dive deep into liturgy. I also do interviews with folks I think are doing interesting things in the tefillah space and also do professional development, writing, consulting around tefillah and making it accessible and meaningful. Uh, right now, we're running our first ever teachers fellowship for people who teach tefillah in Hebrew schools. And just last weekend, well, 13 of those folks were here doing a retreat um, where we got to spend Shabbat together and learn together. Billy Jonas came up from Asheville as the guest educator on Sunday, which was so lovely. And we've been meeting over Zoom for the past many weeks. And that is through um, a grant from the Covenant Foundation that we're very grateful for. So starting to apply for grants, starting to take what I'm calling a philosophy, a particular way of thinking about tefillah and how that translates into the way we teach, talk about and experience tefillah, which I think, uh, which I think could use an upgrade. Um, and it's been very exciting. Yeah. Amen to that. Okay. Uh, real quick. So is there a specific age group demographic in terms of your teaching tefillah, interacting with tefillah, this, retreat that you just had is focused on or is it all ages? So with the 
retreat for the for the teachers fellows um in this cohort we're focusing on kind of k through six elementary and middle in schools um there is much to be said about the preschool space and the teen space and adults and i do that work also mm. and i have found that there a lot of the Tvila education happens in those kind of k through six years mm-hmm. and there aren't as many practitioners talking about that kind of elementary age specifically in the way that teen programs have the teen stuff and the people who do early childhood that's their purview and there are amazing people with that and um, but there's kind of this middle bit that we wanted to test it with because you know this is the first time we're doing it and one of my, i don't know if it's a motto but something that keeps coming up over in my life is um you always have to do something once like as soon as i do something once i'm like great doing it again it's going to be easier i have learned so much that i would change and i'm not upset at myself for having done it differently the first time because i just didn't know you got to do it once cool so this is amazing because i'm actually working with my kids jewish day school and i'm going to mm. be meeting with the to feel a person to help design and sculpt some of the curriculum next week so without going into a whole thing which we'll have another conversation <laughs> offline about it okay mm-hmm. what are five elements that a to feel a curriculum from k through what are what are five very important elements yeah i don't know if it's going to come up as exactly five but i can share a couple of pieces of philosophy that I think are important to keep in mind. Um, The first is having the conversation about why you're doing tefillah at all. I think that is often skipped. Now, when I started doing professional development around tefillah, the first question was, how do we make it fun? Mm -hmm. And that was a couple years. And then we started asking, how do we make it meaningful? Mm -hmm. But I actually think there's a step back from that, which is what is this? What is this and what are we attempting to do? And the reason I use the word tefillah and not prayer is that tefillah encompasses the concepts of both prayer and liturgy. And it's important to me to distinguish the two and raise them both up because having a better understanding of what each of those are allows them to be more accessible and more meaningful. Liturgy is the stuff that we inherited. It's the words in the Siddur. All liturgy started as prayer. Somebody prayed it for the first time. Even if it's from Tanakh, somebody made the decision to use that particular line for this particular moment in this particular way. Mm-hmm. The Siddur that we have been given is a series of choices that human beings made, mm-hmm. right? Responses to the universe, which is one way of thinking about prayer, a human response to the universe, trying to put into words that which cannot be put into words. My friend Alexander says that about poetry, and I think prayer is the same way and when to put them and where to put them. And there is so much wisdom because these choices often belie a wisdom. Why are there prayers? Why is is the liturgy in Shachrit in the morning about the renewal of creation each day? Because it's easy to wake up and think, ugh, another day, another day just like yesterday. And the liturgy comes along and says, creation is renewed every day. What wonders there are. Like, This, you know, it could be amazing. Just notice, become aware. It's all an exercise in awareness. And in the evening when the sun starts to set, we might be scared. We might feel out of control. The evening prayers around creation say, don't worry. The sun sets and the sun rises and day rolls into night, night rolls into day, and the stars have their place in the sky. Somebody made a decision that did not happen 
on accident. So the first is recognizing the incredible wisdom in the liturgy when we remember that prayers were written by people. It's not that when I say a piece of liturgy, I am parroting and must 100% believe whatever that means. I don't like using the word believe anymore. I think it's too much of a binary. I must believe 100% what I'm saying as if I'm the person that wrote it. No, let the sea door speak to you. What is it teaching you? What are our spiritual ancestors inviting us into? And then there's prayer, which is one of those big words like God, where we often say it, but we don't really stop and be like, what do we mean by this big word? I do not think it means what we think it means, right? To to paraphrase the princess bride there. Um, not sure it means what we think it means. Whatever it is, a softening of the heart, an awareness of the moment, a calling out, uh, holding up our heart in our hands, uh, responding to the universe, a feeling of being out of control, both for the positive, I didn't do anything to make this world, the beautiful world as it is, and yet here I am, and also feeling out of control for the negative. I wish there was more that I could do about the suffering that I read about and that I see in my world. Um, whatever it is, it's very personal. And the liturgy spotlights particular um, particular attributes. It invites us to exercise particular spiritual muscles, but the prayer is not in the saying of the liturgy. The prayer is personal and the prayer, the liturgy can be a vessel for prayer, but prayer can happen in all sorts of other places and it happens all throughout our lives all the time. But when we bring our awareness, particularly to the things that the liturgy is inviting us into, it can open up our prayer lives and the deeper into our prayer lives we go, the more meaningful the stuff in the liturgy becomes. At its core, and I'll say one more thing about that before you ask, because I could see another question. This doesn't even get into the specific spiritual exercises that the different tefillot do, and that's how I phrase them. And I can send you some stuff offline, Saul, if you want to share. Um, but that is to say that at its best, Tefillah facilitates connection in every direction. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big one for me. The liturgy, the shared language, so we don't have to figure out how to respond to the world totally on our own. We get this guidance from our ancestors. The liturgy connects us backwards in time. And I say spiritual ancestors, um, which I learned from a friend of mine, uh, Rachel, uh, because they're not all our direct ancestors, and that's okay right? It doesn't have to be that for it to be our sacred story. Our spiritual ancestors connects us back to the people before us who were using that liturgy, connects me around to the other people in my prayer community that are in the room and to Jews all over the world who, even with changes, are working from the same template. Um, and it connects me into the future to the people who will be using these words in the future. And prayer connects me inwardly to the what I might call my highest self, my divine spark, that which is the deepest and truest within me. And it connects me outward to that which is greater than myself, which some folks might call God. So what are the choices thinking about the Siddur as choices? When we lead tefillah, we are also making choices. Where are we doing it? Which words are we saying? How will we know what to say? What is the emotional arc of the service? Why are people here and how will we communicate why they're here? That's also a series of choices, um, which I think is very empowering. And I like to remind my students that the Moda'ani, for example, right? 
we know who wrote it. Rabbi Moshe Ibn Macher, he wrote this. The rabbi said it was good to say a blessing, thanking God for returning your soul in the morning. This is the one that he wrote. Um, like a lot of things, the printing press codified prayer when it was originally a lot less uh, standard. But in any case, he and our spiritual ancestors are encouraging us to wake up in the morning and choose gratitude first. Awareness of the beauty of the gift of our lives in gratitude. Then I ask the kids, who actually gets to decide if you're grateful? You. You get to decide. That is empowering. I want to make the conditions the most conducive for a child to choose gratitude. That includes using the language of invitation. I invite you to feel a sense of gratitude for your lives and reminding the students that it is their choice. Tefillah is a gift, I feel. I want them to know that I'm giving them a gift. Here's the thing about a gift. Once I give it to you, I am no longer in control of how you use it. You can open it now. You can open it later. You can open it now, bring it home, put it in a box, not open it again for five years. doesn't matter to me. I care about you, so I'm giving you this gift. You get to do what you want with it. I think that allows also kind of a healthy sense um, from the prayer leader. It's a reminder of me of what I have and don't have control over to say, I don't want to just, you know, I don't want success to only be all of the kids are singing all of the words all of the time, because that's setting myself up to feel unsuccessful a lot of the time. Because when I'm doing services for adults, I also don't want to feel like that is the only measure of success. The prayer is not the words. The prayer is not the song. The prayer is not the building. The prayer is not the words. The prayer can come through those things as a vessel, but the prayer is personal. And everybody already has everything they need for that. That was a lot to throw at you, but <laughs> you give me a so give me a soapbox to talk about tefillah, and it's it's hard for me to stop. That's what this is all about. It's it's the the deep end of the pool and the long answer. So, which amazingly leads perfectly into the next question. So, you said really one of the things I distilled from that is tefillah prayer is connection in every direction. Okay, so did I hear that correctly? Man, I want to make sure. Yeah, the tefillah, tefillah has the potential to facilitate connection, connection in, every, in every, direction. every direction. Okay, I love mm-hmm. it. So on your bio, you say that you're working towards a world of oneness. Mm. Two questions. Well, now three. <laughs> a, how is that going? B, how do you specifically mean oneness? And C, is that really a tie-in to your connection with tefillah in what we just discussed about connection? A hundred percent. What I mean when I say world of oneness is kind of recognizing our inherent interconnectivity uh, with all beings, with the planet, with what was and what will be. None of us exist in a vacuum. We are all part of what has come before and our actions will influence what comes after. Part of what tefillah gives us the opportunity to do is expand our empathy and grow to become more aware of what is around us, the nature and the human beings that are around us. Hopefully by growing our awareness, it will grow our gratitude. By growing our gratitude, it will grow our sense of obligation that now I wanna make decisions that reduce the amount of suffering in the world and help the most people that I can. There's this quote I can send you, I could probably look it up too, 
Um, one of my rabbis is not a rabbi. Uh, her name is Dr. Lisa Miller, and she's a researcher into the science of spirituality. And she shares that in her research, she has found that the more we call into awareness, our connection to all life, it, it changes how we act, that we will then act with that connection in mind. Um, I say working towards a world of oneness because we're not there yet. Like if we actually truly believed that, if everybody believed that, like our economic systems would be totally different, our systems of government would be totally different, our care would be different, like climate change would not exist, right? Like all these things actually wouldn't. So it's a, it's a recognition, right? Sometimes I use the, like the space between the Shema and the Aleinu, and I'll say kind of briefly what I mean by that. In the Shema, we say yud heh vav echad, right? All that is, which is maybe my favorite translation these days of what God's proper name in Hebrew, yud heh vav is, coming from the root lihiyot of being, right? All of beingness is echad, is one. So that's stating a fact, right? We're not asking for anything. We're saying the world is one. Everything is interconnected. And then in the Alenu, at the end of the Alenu, we say, And on that day, that kind of fateful day we're talking about, when the world is as we would like the world to be, what we've been working towards, on that day, will be one, and God's name will be one. Well, why are we saying on that day when in the Shema, we actually said that that's just the reality that we're living in? Mm-hmm. It's because there is a gap, right, between saying... And between the recognition that all is one and what it would look like to actually act on that. Mm-hmm. And so working towards a oneness, a world of oneness to me is trying to bridge that gap um, between the, the, the reality of interconnectedness and the way that we act on that in the world. Beautiful. Okay. Interesting topic. So I, I hear a lot about Mashiach in Hasidic circles not at all in reform world or in some in like messianic judaism which is a real whole another interesting thing as well Mm. talk to me how does what you just said a recognition that all is one you know the past present future existence of unity or of god or depending on how you phrase it up how does that connect to your concept and or if you can speak to the, the Mashiach Messiah concept in the conservative movement, because I've almost never even heard it talked about in there, and I've kind of flowed in and out of that world a lot. Hmm. Or maybe it's not related at all. <laughs> so interesting that you ask about this. Um, there are a couple of things that come to mind. The first is the last time I was home in Memphis and going through a box of my old stuff, I promise this will. Um, <laughs> I promise this will connect. Um, I found a project that we did. We must have been in second or third grade, where we interviewed a fellow member of the class and we wrote like a little booklet and illustrated it about them. And Adam wrote a little book about me. And one of the pages said, Eliana believes that one day the Messiah will come and he will come riding in on a snowy white donkey. It was like a figure on a donkey. And that was like so specific that adult me was like, is that what I believed? Is that what I thought? Where did I get this idea of the snowy white donkey? Or what's I doing what a lot of kids in kind of their black and white minds 
do, which is kind of glom on to these descriptions that we read about in the Bible and imagine that for them to have any residence or meaning or value, they must be 100% factually true, um, which is not actually the case. And that's something that I've kind of discovered in doing more work with kids and research into spiritual development, but that's a different story. So that's A. B, I remember one day in my dad's um, office at the synagogue, so I must have been, I think I remember it as having been in Memphis, so before the age of 13, seeing a book on his shelf called, There Is No Messiah and You're It. And I asked him what he thought of the book, and he said that the best part of the book was the title, and that you really just need the title, you don't have to read the whole thing. There is no Messiah in your it. Act as if you are the person that's going to bring everything about. I, I'm also thinking now about how Elijah, kind of the, the folk presence of Elijah is used, right? Elijah's invited to every bris and baby naming because we say maybe it's this kid that's going to help the world become the world of justice and love and peace and unity that it, we know that it can be. Or maybe it's this Passover. Or maybe it's this week, right? We invite Elijah into every single Havdalah to say, is it going to be this week? That is a recognition both that the world needs healing and that it's possible, which I think is a particular Jewish idea, not to say we're going to ignore what is bad about the world. It's just like good vibes only. And not to say the world is horrific and there's nothing we can do about it. It's the world needs to be changed and it is possible to change it. That's Mashiach to me, I suppose. Okay, so that the change comes from us, from us doing the work. Okay, awesome. We have so much more we could talk about, but there's like three other questions I wanna to get to before we run out of time. Okay, random tangential question. What in the heck is a 7 a.m. <laughs> dance party on Wednesday. Were, were you up all night Tuesday? Was this a Shavuot thing? I just read the date wrong. Let's talk about that. What, what is what that? Is that? So um, about two years ago, I bought myself for Hanukkah a silent disco headphone kit. <laughs> I got 15 headphones and a receiver. Um, I, I miss kind of in the COVID days gathering with people and dancing. While songwriting and singing and music um, is a huge part of my life, kind of up there in terms of my own personal expression and what feels prayerful to me is dance. I love dance. I love moving my body in a free way. And dance kind of allows me to feel into that oneness um, and that inner connection. Uh, in New York, I loved going to Daybreaker. Daybreaker runs these early morning sober raves in different cities around the country. And moving to Durham, I knew that wasn't going to happen here. Um, but but what could I do to kind of fill that gap? I remember being at a daybreaker and hearing Elliot, who's, they call him the MC, but he's the Shaliach Tzibur. He's the prayer leader. He's taking us on a journey and dropping little Kavanot, um, inviting us to raise our hands or inviting us to let go of what is not serving us. And I realized that if I rearranged his kava note, it would be in the order of a shacharit service. Like our body and our breath and our gratitude for being and all the steps it took to get there and feeling connected, it was all there. So Rise and Shine is a bit of an experiment. It's one of the reasons I like that we called it the Light Lab because it's all an experiment. 
um, an experiment in not having singing or song be the main mode of prayer, but having dance and movement be. So we meet a couple times over the summer at the Sarah P. Duke Botanic Gardens here, which are absolutely beautiful. And we dance through the themes and we exercise our muscles of sacred awareness. And it's really fun getting people to come do this with me at 7 a.m., bit of a struggle. <laughs> might have to do it, might have to do the, the, the Minchamari version at some point, but I'm, I'm, I'm keeping at it. We'll, we'll see where it goes. I love it. Next one's next week, <laughs> July 5th. All right, I'm, I'm gonna get on a plane. I'm gonna get on a red eye, I'll see you. Okay, so we're gonna wrap up here. What are some new projects that you have in the works and kind of what's coming up that people can look forward to? Um, <laughs> so I'm currently working on two new albums that I recorded earlier this year, working on getting the last minute touches to them. I'm sure you know um, more than most the amount of work that goes into doing professional recordings. One is a liturgical album that I recorded live in Atlanta with some friends in January. Um, and that's Melodies for Prayer, Nigunim. Uh, it was a really powerful and beautiful experience that's hopefully coming out in a couple of weeks called Orahi. And then I also recorded a bunch of kids songs that we're gonna be, um, it's all new holiday songs. So we're gonna be releasing them as singles over the course of the year to match up with the holidays. Um, that collection to to be a follow-up to my album about ritual objects, Eliana Sings About Jewish Things, we are calling Eliana Rhymes About Jewish Times because uh, we think that's funny. <laughs> and I'm also working on some consulting and artist in residency work for the coming year, growing the podcast and hopefully turning the philosophy and a lot of the work that we've been doing um, into more cohort learning, to curricularize it, to make it so we can work with different educators in um, tefillah education towards spiritual flourishing and bringing that out in the world. I love it. Well, I look forward to all of that. And my final question to you before we go is, what does the Jewish world need now most and why? What the Jewish world needs now um, is love, sweet love, which I'm sure is a joke that other people have made, but it's true. I'm thinking about um, Rabbi Shihel's important work on Judaism being a religion of love. I think we need a recognition that Jewish tradition has a lot of important and beautiful things to say to us, to our lives and to the world. I use the metaphor sometimes about passing down a box and sometimes it can feel like we received a box and the only thing we should do with the box is pass it to the next generation, that that's the only goal. Don't look in the box. I don't wanna be passing down an empty box. I think that there is immense value in what we have to teach and share with the world and learn from the other traditions in the world to work towards that oneness. And I hope we get to do that together. I love it. All right. Well, I want to end with the blessing. First of all, I want to thank you for your time. This has been really sweet. And uh, there's so much more to discover. Definitely go to her website. The links will be below. And I uh, just want uh, to bless you that you should continue to blossom into your fullness as a teacher, educator, to philosopher, leader, organizer, uh, and that your gifts that you give people and communities not only access to tefillah in their mouths, but in their bodies should be received. And that this box that you're handing down 
uh, should be recognized for what it is, which is a treasure, which is a gift. Amen. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been such a treat and a blessing. My pleasure. We'll do it again. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. I'm your host, Saul K. Please subscribe to the channel. It helps us more than you know. Drop a review. Share this with friends and family, people you think would enjoy the content. And we'll see you on the next episode.